you can't escape the disorder part, right? It's order, disorder, reorder. So even though you're making a positive change, you're voluntarily throwing yourself into disorder. So disorder for someone that's new to the gym is their body training. You know, that literally puts your body in disorder. All kinds of hormones and um, muscle secretions are released for the first time. Your heart rate is suddenly up. Uh, you're hungry if you're trying to lose weight and you're doing some kind of caloric restriction. Like, like that literally sends your body into disorder. And you have to remember, like the homeostatic response is going to say, get back to where you were. This is bad. Resist this. And the allostatic response says, like, no, I can move forward to a new reorder. I can work with this. I'm Doug Bopes personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Brad Stolberg. Brad researches, writes, and coaches on health, well-being, and sustainable excellence. He is the best-selling author of The Practice of Groundedness and co-author of Peak Performance. Brad regularly contributes to the New York Times, and his work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic, among many other publications. He is also on faculty at the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. In his coaching practice, he works with executives, entrepreneurs, physicians, and athletes. Today on the show, we discuss what we have gotten wrong about the idea of change, what are the four P's after a big change, the definition of rugged flexibility, and why it's necessary to get through change, the difference between real fatigue and fake fatigue, the most important things you must do to overcome a negative change in your life, what behavioral activation means, and why it's crucial for getting out of despair, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Brad Stolberg to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's a real pleasure to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. So you tweeted something uh, about less than an hour ago that I saw pop up and I was like, this is, this is a great you know, way to really dive into the conversation about change. And you said, research says the average adult experiences over 35 major life changes and countless smaller ones, yet... Our historical models for navigating change are inaccurate and outdated. Learn a new and better way to work with change in life's inev inevitable flux. So what have we gotten wrong and how can we do better? So the first thing that we've gotten wrong is that we think that change is this one-off event that happens to us when the reality is that change is synonymous with life. We are constantly remaking ourselves and changing. The world around us is constantly changing. And when we think of it as an event that happens to us, we sacrifice a lot of our agency and it's very easy to resist it. Like someone comes and tries to hit you. What do you do? You try to block them. You don't let them hit you. And that's kind of how we think about change. Even the language around change is we were hit by change or we were thrown off by change. Whereas the reality is that we're always in conversation with change. Um, those are 35 major life changes. Like I said, that doesn't even account for the minor stuff day to day. And I think so many people build up this resistance to change because we've grown up with the narrative that change is something that is bad and that is to avoid, when in fact, the best way to be stable isn't by avoiding or resisting change, but it's by learning how to dance with change. 
And so what do you consider to be both a major life change? Like what qualifies as that? And then what would you say is like a smaller change? So we'll start with the, the major life changes because these are going to immediately resonate with so many listeners. So I'm just going to like rattle off a bunch of examples here. You start school, you graduate school. You start dating someone, you break up with someone. You get married, you get divorced. You have kids, your kids leave the house. You start a new job, you get laid off. You retire. You start training for a marathon, you run a marathon, you get injured. You recover from injury. You get into trouble with the law, you get incarcerated, hopefully you get out of incarceration. You get sick, with physical illness, you recover. You experience depression, you recover, you lose a loved one. And many of these things happen to us more than once. So like these things that we consider major changes, they happen every 18 months or so. So it's not an exception, it's the rule. And then minor changes, the stuff that throws people off to use the language of change all the time, I mean, it's as simple as your kid's sick home from school or your dog just vomited on your couch or you were really stoked about the workout you were gonna do at the gym, but you pulled your hamstring. Um, I mean, think about how many times people just freak out about these things, myself sometimes included, I'm not perfect, and how we let these things throw us off. Um, so yeah, like there's not a day that goes by where everything goes as planned. And then diving into change specifically, um, you know, you talked about like some of the things that we've gotten wrong and how we can move forward and dance with change in a way that's positive. Um, I know you cover a lot of science in the book. Um, what, what does the neuroscience say about how to effectively navigate change from an emotional health of mental health and a brain health standpoint? Yeah, I love this question. So are you willing to go kind of deep into the, the weeds of science with me here? Sure. All right. So the old model of change was originated in the mid 1800s and many people have heard of it. It's called homeostasis. And the way that the research community conceived of change was in a homeostatic model. And what that means is that there's a system that has stability and order, and then some kind of chaos or disorder comes and it disrupts the system. And then the goal of the system is to get back to where it was as swiftly as possible. So order at X, disorder at Y, everything possible to get back to X. And that was the prevailing model of change for about 150 years. Within the last couple of decades, researchers have said, actually, that's not really how healthy systems engage with change. What they do is they start at order, they experience disorder, and then yes, they crave stability, but that stability is somewhere new. They get to reorder. So if the old model is order, disorder, back to order, the new model for change is order, disorder, move forward to reorder. In the period between disorder and reorder, the sciencey word for that is the allostatic period. And what the research shows is that the more allostatic load we have, the harder those transitions are from disorder to order, the worse we feel and the worse it is for our health. But the more fluidly we can move from disorder to reorder, the better we feel and the better it is for our health. So it sounds kind of simple, but when you think about it, it's really profound because it takes everything that we conventionally think about change, which is it's something that happens to us and it's bad and therefore we need to get back to where we were. And it shifts it to say that, hey, change is something that we participate in and we're never getting back to where we were. We're always trying to move forward to a new reorder. So yes, we crave stability, but that stability is somewhere new. It's interesting you bring up this, this um, 
theme, this thesis of homeostasis, you know, this is something that actually changed my life. Probably, I don't, I don't know if it's been like, it's been about a decade or so ago. But anyway, long story short, I'll make this as quick as possible. Um, I grew up in a pretty stressful environment as a kid. And as I came out on the other side of a lot of my trials and out of my trials and tribulations, I went to jail for drugs, was addicted to drugs, all that stuff. My life was great after I got into recovery, became a personal trader and that sort of thing. But then I start, I still started to experience stress and I started to experience anxiety and I had no idea why. Ended up going to therapy and my therapist thankfully said, you know, your body is reverting back to homeostasis. Your, your body is reverting back to its normal, its normal ground. Like you're used to being in a stressful environment. So when you're not stressed, your body's going to bring you back to that. And so I gained understanding of that. And instead of fighting it and just knowing that, like, instead of fighting it and thinking there was something wrong with me because I wasn't supposed to feel stressed anymore now that I found fitness and, and obsessed with personal growth, I started to just embrace it and be like, all right, this is part of life. This is normal that I'm experiencing this. And then ironically, a lot of those, sim a lot of those symptoms ended up subsiding because there was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no like, what's wrong with me attached to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that what you're describing really is like the to me the difference between homeostasis and allostasis. So homeostasis would say that you're doomed to go back to where you were because like that's your body's quote unquote set point. And what allostasis would say is that actually you can work with what's happening and end up somewhere new and perhaps better. In your case, definitely better. And so like really unpacking this in a, in a way that I think the listeners will really appreciate it's, it's no secret, like you said, that everybody's going to go through all these changes throughout their lives. And a lot of times when you have the mindset, this change is happening to me and get caught in the, the victim mindset, the change ends up making your life even worse because of the way you respond to it. And based on the way that you describe, it's like the way we, the way we manage everything throughout the change is really going to be what separates us from whether we come out of it better or worse on the other side. So let's just say that some major life change just happened for me. Let's just say that I'm not dating anybody now, but let's just say I've, I've, da I've dated somebody for five years. We break up and all of a sudden I have this major change in my life and I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm all the things. Um, like, where do I go from here? So the first thing that I would say is that um, that sucks and it's okay for that to suck. Like, you know, you talked a little bit about the dark side of, of self-help, and I know that that was a, a prior episode that you recorded earlier this year. And I think that people can get into a trap where they say, oh, you know, even though I broke up with my, my girlfriend or boyfriend or partner of five years, well, I should grow from it and I should find meaning in it because that's what all the self-help books tell me to do. And that's bullshit. Like when you break up with someone after five years, it just sucks and it's okay to let it suck. However... I think that we have to be really careful of not falling into despair because despair is like a pretty crappy place to be. And it's also not a very useful emotional state. So letting it suck doesn't mean letting yourself stay in bed all day. It doesn't mean completely checking out of life. And that point, it might actually mean like leaning into a routine, just getting up and doing things for the sake of getting up and doing things. Um, as you know better than anyone, fitness plays such a big part in like the early stages of navigating a big change. So just like doing something to change the state of your mind and body out of that despair loop. Now, maybe that acute despair loop lasts a week, a month, 
maybe it lasts six months. In the case of like loss of a loved one, it might last a year. Like grief really has no end. But what tends to happen is as we move away from the negative event in time, we tend to gain a little bit more perspective. And that's when we can do something about it and we can shape it. So we can look back and we can say, hey, like what went wrong? You know, was this wrong partner selection? Was this on me? Was this on them? Was this on both of us? What could I have done differently? How might this impact how I think about dating in the future? How can I learn to love myself and be enough as myself so that I'm not so reliant on someone else for my emotional health right now in my life? So there's like an immediate pause to just feel the emotions and sit with them. And then that pause, like I said, depending on the, the, the scale of the change, that pause can be a couple hours, it can be a day, it can be a year. But eventually then like once we've processed what happens, then we tend to learn from it and we tend to make a plan and then move forward. So I call it actually the four P's. You can hear me throwing around all these P's. Like after big changes, we pause, we process, we learn, then we make a plan about what to do and then we proceed. And we're just constantly going through those cycles. And to me, like that's the cycle of growth. And so with, with that, with this example, taking this example to, to the next level, you know, I've gone through the breakup. I've understood that it, the breakups suck and I need to, to grieve this process. But I've also, I'm also like maybe hearing somebody like yourself or somebody else say, you know what, like you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of your mental health. Like you can't use this as an excuse to make your life worse. Although while it does suck, you can't just let yourself completely go. What kind of things should somebody be doing like on a daily basis, like what, what does the science support as far as how to improve their overall well-being, get them to get them to a place that they can navigate this change as efficiently as possible? Love it. So we're talking about, um, let's define it, right? Because change, change is, we talked about, there's big change, there's small change, and then there's change in a positive direction, which is you just met a girlfriend and moved in with her and like married her, and then there's change in a negative direction. So we're talking about big negative change, which is kind of its own category. And what the research shows here really clearly is that the most important thing that you can do early on is one, not judge yourself for what you're feeling, which you alluded to. Number two, lean heavily on routine because the mind is going to want to fall into like a despairing rut and a routine doesn't let that happen. So whatever that routine is, I wake up, I make coffee and I go to the gym or I still shower every morning, whatever it is. Like even if you don't feel like doing those things, force yourself into that routine. Voluntary simplicity also goes a long way. So when the world is feeling like really big and complex and spiraling out of control, it can be helpful to try to simplify your own life so that you just have like two or three big things that you get to, you get to accomplish every day and get wins on. And then finally, perhaps most importantly, is seeking support from others. I mean, a huge upside, if there is any upside of these big negative change quadrants, is that we gain more compassion for ourselves and for other people and it can draw us closer to other people. So this is the time to reach out to your friends and like really lean on them and let them be there for you because one day you're going to be there for them. In the case of grief or substance abuse, I mean, this is why support groups exist and that's why they're so powerful. So it's not to say that the breakup doesn't suck and it's not to say, oh, like you're going to get all these good things. You're going to meet new people and gain compassion. No, the breakup does suck and... You can still do these things to help yourself. And maybe, just maybe somewhere along the way, you get a little bit kinder and wiser. There's somebody who's listening to this and they're like, all right, I got it. Or if I'm saying this in this example, got it. I want to, I'm going to understand that, you know, I shouldn't judge myself. That this kind of stuff is hard no matter what the change is. But I got to stay in a, into a routine. 
But if I'm like Brad, um, I understand the importance of a routine and I'm still going to shower every day. I'm still going to like show up to work and do all these things. But I want to know like a few things I could do every day that have been proven to help me improve my overall like mental health, like, like throughout that, that, that can have been proven to improve my overall mental health. What could I do? Like, what, what should I make sure I do on a daily basis other than just making sure I stay in a routine? I think physical activity is um, the, the most blunt force tool where whatever you're going through, if you're not feeling good, physical activity tends to help. Um, so some sort of physical activity and then social support and community, as I mentioned. Um, that is so important when we're going through big negative life changes. You know, I think someone, not me, someone might say like sleep and nutrition is really important. But when you've just gone through a like despairing, terrible breakup, like you're not going to be sleeping great. And the last thing you need to do is freak out about that. And you might not be eating great. So it's like, sure, do what you can to sleep well and eat well, but also like show yourself some grace if it's hard up front. But I think that no one has ever regretted like a 45 minute workout. What do you think of like the Goggins mindset or people who just are like suck it up buttercup? I mean, do you think that they're, in your opinion, is there a place for that? Or do you think that um, it could tend to, to not help a lot of people? I think it depends. You know, I used to be like, I used to have a much firmer position on this. And I'd say like the Goggins stuff is bullshit. I've come a long way from that. And I've, I've really changed my mind there. And I think like Goggins is Goggins. So first off, Goggins is a freaking outlier. Yeah. The Goggins approach I don't know. Maybe it works for 40% of people and maybe not for 60. So I think some people are on the side where they need a lot of like compassion and self-love because they're really hard on themselves and they're already hard on themselves. They don't need Goggins to tell them to be harder on themselves. Like they're already judging themselves. You know, they don't need Goggins in their ear. They've got that going on for themselves. Then it's not helpful. But there are other people that really struggle to get off the couch and do fall into like some of that victim mentality and like, woe is me. And I think having Goggins in your ear for those people can change someone's life. Um, so I really think it's kind of like knowing where you sit on this scale of like, do I need a hype speech and do I need someone to judge me and tell me to toughen up buttercup? Or like, you know, did my son or my wife just die? And like, what I really just need to do is freaking grieve. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I love how you put that, that it's like, depends on the person, depends on how you receive things. Like for me, like when I was in jail, what changed me was my cellmate telling me to quit being a bitch. And that really resonated with me because it, it taught me the importance of taking self-accountability when he was like, dude, you're blaming everybody for your problems, but yourself, like you have two choices. You can be a man and own your stuff, or you can complain in the corner and cry and, and say, what well, was me? But as a trainer, early on, especially, I thought that that was the mentality that was like, you know, you better make time for fitness. It's life, like all this stuff, like stop making excuses. And then I learned that it wasn't always the best way to get people to change. And I had to soften up a little bit and learn that like, listen, not everybody's going to respond to this. I don't want to even call it, it's not even tough love, this like, you know, get off your butt mindset and just do the work. Not everybody's going to respond to that. And I definitely had to change my position on that on the other side of that as well. So the way that I like to think about this, Doug, is um, you want to have a bunch of tools in your toolkit. And there's the Goggins tools, and then there's like the Buddhist self-love tools. And there's a time and a place for both. And the key is like carrying a really big toolkit. And then as you live life and gain experience and you learn, you start to learn like what tools work in what situations. Now, a through line in Master of Change is this concept of rugged flexibility. 
And I argue that like it is the core quality that is needed to navigate change skillfully and well. And what's interesting, I know you're going to bring up Goggins, is part of what rugged flexibility does is it tries to like marry these two extremes. So Goggins is rugged. He's durable. He's tough. He's strong. And you need that to get through change. But you also need flexibility and letting go and realizing what you can't control and showing yourself some grace. And I think such a problem is we think we tend to think of these things as like complete opposites that you're either going to be flexible or rugged. You're either going to be soft or hard. When in fact, what the literature shows and what the experience of many people show is that they're perfect complements. Like self-discipline requires a lot of self-compassion because doing hard things is freaking hard. And if you want to have the courage to go do hard things and fail, you better have your own back. Because if you don't have your own back, then why are you going to risk it? So I think like you know, I call it non-dual thinking. And these aren't my words, right? This is, I guess, what cognitive scientists would call it. So dual thinking is this or that. You're either rugged or flexible. And I think navigating change requires non-dual thinking. It requires us to be rugged and flexible. How does somebody know which tool to pull out of the toolkit, though? Because I think oftentimes it can be confusing on, like, when is it okay to sit here and, and sulk a little bit and have some compassion? Or when is it like, time to be like, you know what, you need to get off the couch, you need to get outside and go like apply for a job or get back out there. You know, I think that the best, and, and it's, it's, it's perhaps the hardest, but like this to me is um, what you're getting at is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. So knowledge is knowing something in your head and wisdom is knowing it in your bones. And I think the only way you know something in your bones is by like going out in the world and living. So, you know, you try different tools in different circumstances and you pay close attention to what you get. I do think that there's this point after big changes, particularly negative ones, where we are really exhausted and we do need some rest and it's really appropriate to kind of shut things down for a period of time. But I think where people run into a trap is that period of time becomes inertia. And then three days becomes a week and a week becomes a month and suddenly it's been a year. And that's where people can fall into really gnarly traps. So the way that I like to think of it is I err on the side of like compassion and shutting things down for a few days. And then if I'm not feeling better, I pretty firmly nudge myself back into action. So I don't wait to feel better. I say, all right, like we've given it time. You know, if you're really physically and psychologically cached, like you probably should be feeling better. And if you're still kind of feeling down, is it real fatigue or is it fake fatigue? And if it's fake fatigue, then we know that the best way out of fake fatigue is to just take those feelings along for the ride and say, you know, I know I feel like crap and like time to get off the couch and get going and give myself a chance at feeling good. Um, and the literature is called behavioral activation. And it basically says that we think that we need to feel good to get going, but often we need to get going to feel good. And I think that at a certain point, behavioral activation becomes a really important tool for getting out of like a despair rut cycle. I think Rich Roll says like moods, mood follows mood action. Mood follows action. Rich Roll sums it up so well. And in AA, they say very similarly to Rich, um, right thinking follows right action. So it's so true, man. And, and staying on this theme, because I love where we're going with this, is, is does the science say anything about, and again, generally speaking, I'm not talking about extremes where you know somebody very close to you passes away or you go through a really traumatic divorce or whatever the case may be but generally speaking like how much time should it take for somebody to come out on the other side of of change generally speaking let's let's 
We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Just Thrive. I have covered the topic of gut health extensively on the show and why it is so important to have a healthy microbiome. 80 to 90% of Americans suffer from some type of gut issue and 70 to 80% of your immune system is in the gut. And while cleaning up your diet and managing your stress should be at the foundation of addressing your gut health, a probiotic can certainly be very beneficial. When buying a probiotic, you want to be sure that you get one that actually works and delivers on their promises. Research shows that 99.9% of them die in your stomach acid before they reach your gut. That's where Just Thrive Probiotics stands out from the crowd. Their proprietary strains have been third-party clinically tested and proven to arrive 100% alive in your gut, unlike other probiotics that die on the way. But that's not all. Their probiotics have more clinical research than any other products on the market and are proven to work. So if you are tired of struggling with gut issues like gas, bloating, and indigestion, look no further than Just Thrive Probiotics. So for a limited time, you can get 20% off your first 90-day bottle of Just Thrive Probiotic. So visit JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Again, it's JustThriveHealth.com and use promo code Doug to get 20% off. Now back to the show. Like go back to these quadrants, okay? So you've got small positive, small negative. In there, it should be like 20 minutes. You know, your dog vomits and now you're late to a meeting. Okay, like that should be a 20-minute ordeal at most. And then like that should be out of your head, short memory. Um, you get a great email from your colleague at work or like your boss tells you great job. You, like you feel that high. Great. Back to things. So we can talk about those in a minute. But those like we should not let upend our day. Those should be very quick. Then we've got big positive change and big negative change. So big positive change I'm of the mindset that you want to give yourself some time to like really like enjoy it because that's what's going to sustain you when things aren't good, but also like get back to living your life and get back to work because the last thing you want to do is kind of glow in like success and become complacent or become addicted to that feeling of like needing to succeed or needing to catch a good break. So for positive changes, I like to say, I don't know, depending on the scale, 24 hours to a week of kind of like, I'm just like going to really ride this high. But then it's back to the work, like whether you want to or not, like stop checking your Twitter, stop looking at your dashboard about how well you did at work, like get back to doing the thing. For big negative changes, the time that it takes is completely correlated to how big the change is. So what's fascinating is there's this study that I profile in the book out of University of Wisconsin, where researchers looked at people who experienced like capital T trauma, massive car accidents that left their health forever changed. Um, really crappy health diagnoses. And what they found is that, well, a couple things, two big findings. The first is that the average course was not PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but PTSG, post-traumatic growth. So more people came out of trauma with growth than with stress disorder. The second thing that they found is that everyone went through a three to six month period where they felt worse. So when they follow people, what they see is that the line across the board is going down for three to six months. Everyone looks like they're just going into like the shitter. But then at the six month mark, a subset of those people, the majority of those people start to feel better and they start to make meaning out of their struggle and get on with their life. Now, for the subset of people that don't, that experience post-traumatic stress disorder, it's really important not to judge those people as like having done something wrong because so much of this is just related to our neurochemistry that we can't control. 
So all we can control is giving ourselves a chance to come out of these harrowing experiences with growth, but sometimes we don't. And when we don't, what do we need to do? We need to seek professional help. All right, so let's blend these two ideas that we've talked about in the conversation. The, the first one was one of the pitfalls of the self-help space in that when you go through something hard, you should just like assume that everything's going to be okay and you should be happy all the time and positive and why are you feeling like this, blah, 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 right? And immediately make meaning. And I think like this is such a nuanced topic because yes, I just said the research shows that even for really shitty traumas, we tend to experience a meaning growth. But that meaning and growth almost always comes once you're out of the woods. So when you're in the woods, the worst thing that you want to do is force that on yourself. So to make it really clear, I'll use myself as an example. Almost eight years ago, I experienced a really bad, dark clinical depression. And I distinctly remember, and I, I write about this in the book in detail, a session with my therapist, Brooke, where I was telling Brooke, like, I want to be able to grow from this. I want to find meaning in this. I want to become more compassionate because of this. And Brooke said, to hell with that. Why can't this just suck? Like, why can't you just let yourself be in pain? Because depression doesn't operate like the self-help books do. So just get through it. Don't worry about any of that other stuff. Maybe it'll be there. I'm not saying you should become a nihilist. But don't pressure yourself to do anything right now other than survive and get through this. And that was the biggest weight off my shoulder. And when I stopped trying to force something positive on my experience, I felt lighter immediately. As I continued in my recovery, guess what? The growth in meaning came on its own time. And that's exactly now that I know this, now that I've studied this, like that's exactly what the research shows ought to happen. But when you're in that three to six month period after something terrible, like you just have to let it suck. Um, so it's this, it's this like enormous catch 22 that yes, we tend to grow from struggle. Yes, there is an advantage to adversity. Sometimes when you're going through struggle, it is really helpful to remind yourself that, hey, I'm going to grow from this. Most of the time that's helpful. But when you're in a clinical depression or when you're sobering up for the first time and you're experiencing withdrawal or when you've had a loss of a loved one, that's generally a good time to release from the growth and meaning stuff and just focus on showing up and getting through. And then when you get to the other side, the growth and meaning will find you. You just you summed up what I was going to ask, which was like, you know, knowing that you can't just you know, find meaning right away and you can't just stay positive right away about everything. And then, but then also that the research shows that when you come out on the other side, you're going to have a lot of growth from this. Like, how do you how do you navigate the in between? I know you study mindset a lot, and that mindset is so important when you're trying to achieve anything. Like how you think about something, like is 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 everything. So, like, how can somebody have a like a healthier, like I mean, mindset where it's realistic in a way where they acknowledge that yeah, this 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 situation sucks, and I also understand that I'm gonna get through this. And I need to just keep showing up for myself to survive. Like, how does somebody like blend those two things? I think you just said it. it it's, it's literally like, that's the self-talk track, I think, which is like, hey, you know, I'm a growth-oriented, optimistic person, and I can't find any of that right now. And I'm not going to judge myself for it. I'm just going to let this suck. I'm going to lean into routine, voluntary simplicity. I'm going to get help. I'm going to lean heavily on social support, you know, beyond just professional help. 
And I'm not going to be a nihilist. I'm not going to say, oh, this is going to suck forever. What I'm going to say is this sucks now, but I've done hard things before. I've dealt with adversity and I just have to have faith that if I come out the other side, I'll probably look back on this experience and we'll have grown from it. But I don't need to worry about that right now. Right now, I just need to worry about getting to the other side. Do you believe that adversity is similar to a physical muscle in that the more times you go through challenging things and you're able to navigate it in this healthier way that we've been talking about, the easier things will become moving forward? 100%. Um, and the research backs this up. I do think that there are some exceptions that are worth pointing out. So adverse childhood events, like being domestically abused as a child, you never grow from that. That's just like senseless trauma. Um, rape, never really grow from that. People that go to war very rarely grow from the experience of war. So there are like these super capital T traumas that like just suck and they are meaningless. And like, if anything, they're reminders that like sometimes the world is just cruel. But there's also a lot of really shitty things that we do grow from. So like depression is generally never as hard the second or third time as the first time, because like once you've been there and you've done it, there's a part of you that's like, yeah, like this sucks, but I think I can do this. Um, I've never suffered from substance abuse. I know you could speak to this better than me, but I've heard from a lot of people in recovery and a lot of people that um, do have substance use disorders or are on the other side of it. Like the the urge never goes away, but you have tools to deal with the urge. Like that muscle gets stronger and um, then other things in life get easier. Like my guess is that once you've sobered up, like less things phase you because not as many things are as hard as having withdrawals. It doesn't mean that you still don't get pissed off at your friends sometime or you don't get frustrated in traffic. Um, but if we can get through adversity, we tend to gain more resources to face future struggles, big and small, better. Let's shift to the other side of change. We've, we've talked about like the things that kind of come at you in a way, right? Um, as far as like things you can't control. Let's talk about some of the things you can't control. Let's, let's talk about some of the things you can control and you're trying to make a change like for the positive. Like let's just say, you know, somebody's trying to, to lose weight, for instance, which, or they're trying to gain muscle. They're trying to achieve a fitness goal, which I know is in your wheelhouse as well. But a lot of people have a hard time like sticking to it, setting realistic goals and changing. So what does the blueprint look like for that when you're looking to make a change for the positive? Like how can somebody navigate that effectively? You can't escape the disorder part, right? It's order, disorder, reorder. So even though you're making a positive change, you're voluntarily throwing yourself into disorder. So disorder for someone that's new to the gym is their body training. You know, that literally puts your body in disorder. All kinds of hormones and um, muscle secretions are released for the first time. Your heart rate is suddenly up. Uh, you're hungry if you're trying to lose weight and you're doing some kind of caloric restriction. Like, like that literally sends your body into disorder. And you have to remember, like the homeostatic response is going to say, get back to where you were. This is bad. Resist this. And the allostatic response says, like, no, I can move forward to a new reorder. I can work with this. So I really think 90% of the problems is just false expectations. Like if people know going in that it's going to probably feel a lot worse before it feels better, then they stick with it. So whenever I'm talking with someone on a fitness journey, I always say like, you know, I want you to know that a year from now, if you do this consistently, you're going to feel great and you're going to love it and it will be like brushing your teeth, but you got to give me 60 days because the first two months, 
you're probably not going to like this. Now you might, I don't want to like make you super negative. Like maybe you'll be an outlier and there are pleasant surprises, but like, I want you to expect that this is going to be hard. There's going to be resistance and you're not going to like it. And you need to get through that period before your body starts reordering at that new place. So I really think like expectations play a huge role. There's this equation I have in the book that says um, that your mood or your, your emotional state at any given point in time is your reality minus your expectations. So if your expectations are really high for what training for the first time is going to be like, and your reality is that it sucks and you don't want to do it, you're going to be in a shitty mood and you're going to quit. So I think that, man, just like realizing that even positive changes, we go through disorder and those like it, it generally gets worse before it gets better. But just knowing that going in makes it so much easier. So what would you say are the, are the most important things to that go into like having healthy expectations around, let's say, a fitness goal specifically so that, you know, somebody under, a understands what they're getting into, but they're also able to figure out what they need to do from a realistic perspective daily and weekly that are in line with reality while also in line with what they want. I think being patient is the most important thing. Looking to people who have been doing it for a long time and are really good at it, very rarely, not, not never, but very rarely are they doing crazy diets or crazy programs or crushing themselves every day. A lot of like people cycle through fads of doing that, but the people who have really been in the game for a long time and are doing it well, like they prioritize consistency over intensity and getting that in your head early on is so important. And then I want to relay a story that um, a friend of mine, Stu McMillan, who's a coach of um, sprint athletes, his athletes have won over 35 medals at the Olympics. He's arguably the best living coach of Olympians right now. And Stu talks about how even in training his best in the world athletes, they eliminate the mindset of 10 out of 10. They don't want any athletes to even think about getting to a 10 out of 10. They want everyone to try to be between a six and an eight out of 10 every day because performance is so complex that if you try to get 10 out of 10 here, it's going to blow up on you somewhere else. But if you can just be a six to eight out of 10 on all the big systems in your life, the emergent property of that is a 10 out of 10. And this gets into like complex systems theory, which is if you try to optimize on any part of the system, there's unintended consequences. But if you build a system that's really robust across the board, then the outcome the emergent outcome of that is a 10 out of 10. So if Stu McMillan's telling his athletes that good enough is good enough, then that's such an important mindset to embrace. And I mean, I get excited talking about this because that is my training to a T. So like over the last three years, I recommitted to strength training and I've been pretty serious about it. And my workouts are boring. There's no bright and shiny objects. I've gone to the well in the last three years maybe seven or eight times at most, but I haven't missed a workout. I haven't been injured or at least injured in a way that prevents me from training. And my day to day like effort is probably between a six and an eight out of 10. But then I look back and my numbers are like, whoa, 10 out of 10 numbers. But there was not a single like 10 out of 10 day in there. And I think that's so important because when you get in, it's, it's human nature. When you do something new and you're inspired and you're motivated and maybe you do have goggins in your ear, like you want to crush it. 
And it's so important to show restraint early on because if the expectation is that you're going to crush it and it should feel like crushing it every day, you will injure yourself. Full stop. How important is it for becoming, like I know you're talking about becoming anti-fragile, becoming like... Rugged and flexible. Yeah, rugged flexibility. Yeah, rugged, developing rugged flexibility. How important is like showing up even when you don't feel like it? Again, assuming there's no like risk of injury at stake, how important is it to just keep showing up as far as developing that and then you know really optimizing your mindset? Yeah, it's so important. Like we think about the great days, but what's actually more important is raising the floor. So if the ceiling are the great days, like that's what everyone talks about, but it's more important for your bad days to go from like all cap shitty to lowercase shitty. <laughs> and seriously, you do that over 10 years and suddenly like you're pretty good. And that, that's what makes that's what makes like a pro or a craftsperson is that even on their not good days, they show up. They're smart. They don't go try to crush themselves and injure themselves, but they modify, they adjust, they show up, and they still put in some some level of work. And I think that's it. Like it's it's tying a couple of these things together. First, you like you want to separate real fatigue from fake fatigue. So real fatigue is my mind-body system is cached and I need to rest. Fake fatigue is I just kind of don't feel like it. Or maybe I had real fatigue and I've rested for a couple of days and I still don't really feel like it. Once you have fake fatigue, then rich roll all the way. Mood follows action, what I call behavioral activation, like get going. But that doesn't mean that you can't adjust what you're doing based on how you're feeling, but you just got to get started. I mean, you've been in the fitness business for a long time. Like you've probably seen this so often. You should never prejudge a workout. So like how you're feeling warming up almost has no correlation to how you're going to perform that day. How you're feeling on the way into the gym definitely has no correlation. Yeah. And I think to, to piggyback off of that, even when I'm not feeling good, I, I just tell myself, it's like, dude, like you need to be here. Like you're not, you're not like completely fatigued. Like you just are stressed out having a, a rough day or whatever. Like you need to be here. And what I found is even though, because I'm just, stress and that's creating more i guess mental fatigue maybe i don't lift as much as i i could have on a day where i wasn't feeling stressed when i leave there there's this sense of accomplishment that has been so meaningful to me that i'm like you know what even though i didn't want to do this thing i was there even though this felt hard i did it anyway what is your thoughts on i guess purposely pursuing things that are hard or just are uncomfortable in order to better embrace change? Yeah, I think that everyone should have something in their life that is what I call like a real thing. And by a real thing, I mean something where the effort that you put in and the result are directly connected. They're not reliant on what anyone else says or thinks. And they're very objective. So deadlifting, that's a real thing. There's weight on the ground, you either got it up to your hips and locked out or you didn't. Doesn't matter what your boss thinks, doesn't matter what the reviewer at the New Yorker thinks, you either made the lift or you didn't. Running a marathon, running a mile, that's a real thing. Getting on the Peloton and finishing a workout, that's a real thing. Gardening, there was nothing in the ground, you planted something, it died, you learned, you had to water it again, now it grew. That's a real thing, it doesn't just have to be in the gym. But I think that especially for people that do knowledge work, there's so much wishy-washy bullshit 
of like whether or not you did a good job is based on the politics of the office or what your boss thinks or like the mood of your business partner that day. But when you get into a gym, like the barbell is just matter. There's no emotion. Um, when you're gardening, you're working with nature. Like there's no office politics that's going to impact whether or not those flowers take hold. So I think that like for dudes like us that like have a strong physicality and physical inclination, yeah, like physical pursuits are a great example. But for listeners that that doesn't resonate with, like I think that trying to garden well qualifies as every bit of a hard thing as trying to deadlift well because what they share in common is like it's real. There's you can't bullshit your way through. What do you think of like cold plunges and sauna and stuff like that? So okay, a couple of things. The first is I think that the physical health effects of a cold plunge are wildly overstated. I actually don't think they exist at all um, outside of an acute injury. So like you sprain your ankle or you tear your ACL and there's tons of swelling and you need to do something to get that swelling under control, then yes, a cold plunge matters. If what you actually care about is like muscle growth and hypertrophy, all sorts of research shows that a cold plunge works against that. Because you want your body to have that inflammatory response. That's a signal to your body that it needs to repair faster and grow. Now, for mental and emotional health, if a cold plunge is the hard thing that you do every day, where you put yourself in discomfort and you get through it, then I think that's very valuable. However, you adapt, just like anything. So it might be really hard for the first month, but once it becomes like a part of your routine then maybe the hard thing is not doing the cold plunge and getting through your day. Like once you become attached to it, you know, then what value does it have? Um, so for me, like what's nice about strength training or running is like progressive overload. Like if I, if I never increase the weight, then eventually it wouldn't be a hard thing. Whereas the cold plunge, like you, you can only make it so cold before it's unsafe. So I think it's like a good on-ramp for people that are experimenting with doing something hard. But at the end of the day, like I'm such a gym rat. I'm like, why spend $8,000 on the bathtub? Just like get a Gold's Gym membership and start training with the same program and it'll be plenty hard. Yeah, I, I've one of the, the, the main reasons that I've enjoyed the, the cold plunge is for the mental and emotional benefits of just seeing like that. You know, when I first get in it, I'm like in there five seconds and I'm like screaming. And then eventually I work my way up until like two minutes or something. And I see this, this meaningful change happen in this improvement in self-confidence and self-esteem. And I see how it impacts me. But I think you're right. Like you have to figure out like what works for you. Have you adapted though to it? Because that's I, like, that's my concern is like eventually you adapt and then it's not that hard. Or well, is I it just hard every time? I mean, it never got easier for me. Granted, I didn't do it every single day. I mean, I think the, the most repetitive I ever did it was maybe like once a week or once every like five days. Well, then of course it's hard. That's like going to a CrossFit class on the weekend and like destroying yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I definitely, even, even though I only did it that amount of time, I still was able to improve the length of time I, I spent in there and that sort of thing. And I still felt great, you know, afterwards, but I totally... I think it's like all dependent on the person. And again, like I did it because of the mental and emotional benefits. And it's because I was like, all right, this is going to be my thing where I just embrace the suck today, you know? Yeah. And I think that's really clear. And in, in, in there, I want to be, um, I want to be explicit that I don't think there are any real physical health benefits worth doing it for. But I think that if it's a mental and emotional benefit and it adds value to your life and you feel like it is doing something for you that is important, 
then yeah. Like, especially because you don't have to buy an $8,000 cold plunge. You can just like turn the shower cold. Um, Cause again, like it, it's just, it's so overstated. Like this brown fat thermogenesis, like, you know, you look deep into those studies and you're talking about like burning an extra 18 calories a day, which is literally like a single potato chip. I mean, the data is just not there for physical benefits. Psychological though, whether it's a shower or a bath doesn't really matter. It's going to be freaking hard. Um, the flip side of that is I've got two young kids and getting them off to school every morning feels like a cold plunge. So there might be a stage in my life, though, when those kids are older and more self-sufficient, and I do feel like I need to inject another hard thing. Um, so back to the tool in the toolkit. It's like a, a cold plunge is a good voluntary challenge tool to have in your kit, and whether or not you use it is going to be dependent on your situation. We've talked about how to navigate change and how to, again, be realistic with it and also understand that once you get out on the other side of it, that there is a lot of deep meaning and post-traumatic growth that comes from it. You've shared your own personal experience with being clinically depressed and what that was like. Other than that, what has been a big um, change that you've gone through that's provided you um, tons of meaning? Oh, so many. Becoming a parent, um, becoming a parent again, uh, moving from a big city to a small town, um, being on the um, like organizational trajectory and working in organizations to deciding that I want to actually be a full-time writer and have my own coaching practice, uh, having orthopedic surgery on my leg that forced me not to rely on fitness is a uh, you know medicine for life for a period of time and, and getting through that. Uh, the pandemic, like everyone else and their sister, so like, you know, and, and these are all just within the last six years. So it's back like that number 35 sounds uh, excuse me, astounding when you first hear it. But I think I've been through like eight of those in the last five years. Thanks for sharing that, man. I really appreciate all of your wisdom and coming on here and talking about change. It's something that it's, 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 it's something that everybody continues to, to struggle with throughout the course of their life. But I think what does change within that is how you navigate it. And so I appreciate you coming on here, sharing the science, sharing the tools that people can can utilize and how to you know transform their mindset through that so that they can come out on the other side of life changes um, in a, as a better version of themselves. So if people want to get the book, if they want to connect with you, where's the best place to do that? So thank you so much for having me. That's the first thing I'll say. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, the book is available wherever books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, independent bookstore, if you prefer to listen. It's also on audio, Audible, Libro, other audio providers. And the best place to find me on the internet is probably my website, which is just my name, www.bradstalberg.com. And then the links to my various social media profiles will all be there. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And Brad, thank you so much for coming on. And I think my audience is going to really get a lot out of this conversation and learn to master the art of change. So thanks again, man. Thank you, Doug. And thanks for what you do for um, the community of people out there that are uh, looking to, to better themselves. You got it, man. Appreciate you, man.